Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 25th, 2021. Yes, they had an old friend on the show, Casey Schwartz, her new book, Attention, A Personal History of Finding Focus or Trying to, is her uh, very honest, brutal in some ways, and very troubling autobiography of her relationship. She's a young woman, Casey Schwartz, of her relationship with the, the attention drug Adderall, which she experienced at Brown University. The book is Making Great Waves. And it, and it speaks to me in many ways of the state of our children at the moment, or shall we say our young people, their need to focus, their challenges in an increasingly complex world in which they seem to be suffering, feeling a great deal of, of pressure. Uh, as, a, as a parent myself, uh, I see it um, uh, firsthand. I think as parents, we will have a, a front row on the culture of adolescence and of um, post-adolescence in America. It's a new book out by two very distinguished um, uh, practitioners and thinkers on adolescence and childhood and post-childhood in America. Uh, William Stixrud, PhD, and Ned Johnson, their new book is What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. Earlier today, I talked more broadly to Ned uh, Johnson um, about childhood, but uh, I'm thrilled that uh, we're also joined today uh, by William Stixrud, PhD, and uh, that's what it says on the book. I'm going to call him Bill. Uh, Bill is in the business of, I think, figuring out kids in today's complicated world. Uh, So, so, so Bill, welcome to the show. Um, I know that Casey Schwartz is not necessarily typical. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but you are an authority on attention, on on, uh, attention deficit disorder. Is this a disease of the young, a unique thing in today's culture? I don't think so. The attention problems seem to be about 80% genetic. In the sense, if one, one identical twin is diagnosed, there's an 80% chance the other one will be two. And so, so presumably this has been in, in, in the gene pool for, for a long time. And it just, it, in many ways, it just makes sense. And if, you, if human abilities distribute normally on a normal curve, like height and weight. And so just if you think about attention span, the people who are any, below the 20th percentile in attention span are going to have trouble focusing. So just, just in general, you're going to see the population, the way that human abilities play out, you're going to see a fair number of people who have more difficulty than most people making themselves pay attention to stuff that's not interesting. Uh, Bill, as I said, your new book is out today. What do you say? How to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home. The role of conversation in talking to your children is, is central to your book. How can we talk to kids who struggle with attention without relying on drugs, particularly in a world of Facebook and Instagram, where more and more of our kids seem to be glued to their devices. Yeah. 
Well, certainly I'm a huge fan of uh, Sherry Turkle's book, Reclaiming Conversation. It was probably written in 2016 or 17. Our old uh, friend it, Bill, uh, Sherry uh, Turkle, I'm going to get to her later, but go on, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, and the, the idea that was simply we, we, we've been talking to each other for 50,000 years. And I think that, that, um, that just hearing the story, sharing stories is so basic to human beings. And what, what Sherry discovered was so many young people said, I'd rather text than, than, than talk in part because the, the, the texting allowed them to, to plan things out and to, to make sure they are going to make any faux pas. And I, I think that what we suggest in, in our book, and this is really that in many kids with ADHD, you can have a conversation for forever if you're talking about something they're interested in. And so, uh, but, but the two of the, the really key skills of communication with, with kids to build the kind of emotional closeness that we, that we want are empathy and validation. And the, the, the idea that when, when, when we're talking with kids, especially if, they, if they're emotionally charged, whether they're angry or mad or, or mm. sad or anxious, that, that we, we use empathy. I mean, it's, it's like empathy no is key. And indeed, as you say, um, the, the title of your first book, uh, your, your first chapter in the book is Communicating Empathy, a Recipe for Closeness and Connection. And I don't think it's coincidental, uh, Bill, that Sherry Turkle was just on the show. She has a new autobiography out, uh, The Empathy Diaries. Uh, Describe empathy to me uh, as a PhD. What does it mean in scientific terms? Well, it means the the ability, empathy is is taking another person's perspective. And empathy is, it has to do in part, I think, with, from a brain point of view, you pick up other people's emotions and you pick them up in part because the amygdala, the part of the brain that senses and reacts to threat, can, can, can smell stress in other people. Literally, through, 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 uh, through smell, you can pick up stress in other people. And also, the amygdala is if somebody's, if somebody's anxious, somebody's uh, angry, the amygdala picks that up and, and you, you feel, you start to feel what other people are feeling. And your, your mirror neurons in the prefrontal cortex that go out and kind of dance with, with the mirror neurons of other people, that there's a different, different neurological ways that we can sense other people's feelings. And empathy is that plus the conscious attempt to understand what, what somebody's feeling. And one of the, the, the pioneers in the field of psychotherapy, Carl Rogers in the 1960s, pioneered the use of, the use of empathy in therapy through, through what he called reflective or active listening, where if, 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 I'm, if I'm telling you about something that's really embarrassing, you may say, it sounds like that, that, that was really kind of humiliating for you, where you just, you're just feeding back to me what you understand I'm saying. And that, that, that communicating empathy is-, is Can you really do that? I, 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 I take your point, Bill, and obviously yeah. empathy, as Sherry says, as you says, is really important. But uh, last week we had the um, the Pittsburgh-based journalist uh, Bill Steigerwald on the show, uh, writing about another Pittsburgh journalist who pretended to be black in in the America of uh, of the 1960s and traveled around as a black man and experienced what it was like to be black. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Facebook's uh, Facebook has a new virtual reality game called um, Traveling While Black. I, I understand why it might make whites more 
understanding of the black experience. But can you really learn uh, something so profound as what it's like to be, say, black or female or poor in America if you're uh, an upper middle class white person? I, I doubt that you can fully grasp the fullness of the experience, but, but, but part of what's so useful in communicating with kids is just letting them know that you're trying, that I'm trying to understand what, what, what you're saying. I'm trying to understand how you're feeling. And I think that, that it's so respectful. And it's that, it's, that, it's that attempt to understand. If you've got a kid who's really upset, you can't talk him out of it. You, 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 can't, you, you can't reason with him. The only thing that really calms emotions is your attempt to say, I, I know I see that's really upsetting for you. And so whether you really truly, truly you're, it's like being inside the person's head or somebody from a different culture or somebody with a very different life experience, I don't think you fully get it. But I think that that respectful attempt to understand is very powerful in its own right. Again, I, I don't want to reveal too many anecdotes about my experience as a parent or my own children. But one of the things that seems self-evident I don't know whether you would agree with this, is that the, the adolescents of today are much more comfortable in a, in a therapeutic culture. They're much more comfortable going to therapists to talk out their issues, their problems with their parents, with the world. Are you suggesting that therapy, in a sense, is the way in which parents should deal with their children? Do all parents need to learn to become therapists? Or perhaps children should learn to become therapists too. How, how um, confident are you about our therapeutic culture? Are there downsides to this? Well, yeah, I, mean, I, I think that I'm trying to, uh, one, of my, uh, one of my son's best friend's mother, Christine Summers, wrote a book called uh, One Nation Under Therapy a few years ago, kind of, it, it, raising the, the point that uh, we're kind of we're losing self-reliance by relying on therapists. And I think that, that that's not, I, I personally think that that's not entirely true. And I think that if, if you there's good evidence, if you if you got a kid or a teenager or a young adult who's really anxious or really unhappy, you, you want to get them treatment. But I don't think that means that, that the majority of kids need to be in therapy. And I think that that in, in our book, in, in what you say, we introduce some tools that are commonly used in therapy. But, but, but they aren't so complicated that, that, that parents can't use them themselves. And, and people have been recommending this active listening or, or what this Israeli scientist, Iran Magan, calls wigging, which is what I got from what you just said, is that that technique has been uh, taught to parents for probably the last 50 years. Um, and I th think that some are better than others at using it. But I was just, I was just uh, talking with the parents the other day, Andrew, of a 15-year-old girl who's, who's, who was hospitalized, psychiatric hospitalization a few months ago, really uh, very sensitive, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. And the parents are being coached in, in how to validate her feelings and not try to talk her out of them and, and not try to say, you need to do this or this, solve the problems for her. And the, the, the girl was really upset about something, and the parents applied this kind of this way of validating her feelings and, and saying, I can see why you feel that way. And the, the girl wrote, a, wrote an email to the parents the next morning, actually an email, <laughs> and, and said, I can tell you you're working really hard on this. And the way you responded to me was so helpful. So I, I just think that, that, that uh, Ned and I interviewed dozens of, of teenagers 
in, in, in process of writing our book, one of the questions we asked them was, who do you feel closest to? And invariably they said, it was somebody who, who, who listens to me without judging me and somebody who doesn't tell me what to do. And I think as parents, there, there's a lot that we can do to, to practice that listening more than we talk and that, that listening respectfully without judgment and uh, not just reflexively telling us what to do. It's very hard, of course, for parents, as you suggest in the book, not to tell their children what to do because we care about them, we care about their happiness, and we always think we know better about what will make them happier than uh, the child themselves. What advice do you give in the book to parents uh, about what to say when the children are, in their minds at least, screwing up, when they're not doing their homework, where they're taking drugs, where they're addicted to their cell phone? How do you how, how are you trying to educate parents? And, and I think your book is more designed for parents to read than, than children. Yeah, yeah, the parents and educators and, and, and other, other people who work with kids um, pr primarily. And so I, mean, I, there, I have two thoughts, Andrew. And one is that um, there, are, there are kids who, who need treatment. You, you got a kid who's really depressed. You got a kid who is smoking pot really heavily. Uh, that kids need treatment. Now, the, the, one of the main metaphors we use in, 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 in What Do You Say? and also in our first book is that as kids get older, we recommend that parents think about themselves more as consultants to their kids rather than, rather than as their kid's manager or boss or the homework police. It, it's funny you say that, Bill, because um, a couple of weeks ago we had Emily Oster on the show mm -hmm. uh, who has a new book out. She's a business uh school professor at Brown. Uh, she has a new book out, The Family Firm, which encourages parents to think of their families as corporations. Are you also borrowing business school language to help parenting and the family? You know, I, I, not, not in any kind of conscious way. I, I really have very little understanding of what's taught in business school. Uh, but the, the, I, I, can't, I, I basically, I wrote, a, I wrote an article in 1986 just uh, advising parents to think about themselves regarding homework as, as a homework consultant, as opposed to the person who's responsible to see the kids get work done. In part, because you can't make a kid do something against his will. You couldn't make your kid do your homework, his homework. And so if that's true, it couldn't be the parent's responsibility to make the kid. And because fighting over homework or fighting over this stuff causes so much harm to relationships, and, and so much stress in families that it just makes sense for parents to decide, I'm not going to fight about this. So there, there's a line in, we use in both of our books. I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And so the idea is that we, 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 I, we want parents to ask three questions. Whose life is it? Whose responsibility is it? And whose problem is it? And we want to recognize that we don't know necessarily, it's really the kid's life, and we don't know who, who he or she wants to be. So our role can't be to make them turn out a certain way. And we want them to be really clear about who's responsible for what, so that we don't take responsibility for stuff that's theirs. And the way the kids become resilient, the way they become emotionally strong and have high stress tolerance is through solving their own problem with our support as necessary. So uh, I, th I think that, we, that therapy is something that I think is important for certain kids, but I, I don't think, it, 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 and kids are certainly more comfortable with it. But yeah. most families don't need it. 
As I said, Bill, the title of your new book, uh, written with Ned Johnson, is What Do You Say? Your previous book, which was a bestseller, is The Self-Driven Child. I can't help thinking that the self-driven child in, in the Bay Area, where I'm based, would be called Tesla. Uh, <laughs> are you in the business of, um, of building algorithms for children, as Tesla is building algorithms for the self-driving car? Uh, this idea of the self-driving child presents the child as autonomous, as being, I guess, quite literally self-driven. Is that possible? All children inherit traits, culture, assumptions, biases, don't they? Sure. And I think that the thesis of our first book, and that we kind of follow up in, in, in what do you say, is that what the, the, arguably the most important thing we can do for, for children and teenagers, besides Letting them, letting them know that they're deeply loved, is to foster the development of a sense of control. And sense of control doesn't mean they get to be in control of everything. It means that, that they, don't feel, they don't feel hopeless. They don't feel helpless. They, they don't feel kind of passive or resist, resigned to a life they don't like. They don't feel chronically overwhelmed. Because a sense of control is hugely related to emotional health, and hugely related to the, to the, the kind of self-motivation, that healthy motivation to develop yourself so you have something useful to offer this world. And Ned and I, both of us, we see so many kids who have what we consider to be disordered motivation, meaning they're, they're either obsessively driven, they're perfectionistic, or they say, I'm not a good student, what's the point in trying? And I think that the key for both is strengthening that sense of control, and this is your life. How, how do you want to pursue it? How can I help? And I think that 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 so that certainly kids are not completely self-driven, but but the the goal is for them to be developing themselves in a direction that makes sense to them. You've been in the business, Bill, of um, of, of of seeing struggling, troubled children for, for much of your life. You run. Uh, the Stixrud Group, which um, is made up of yourself and some other preeminent doctors. How have things changed over the last 25 years in terms of the kids you've been seeing? What, what trends have you observed professionally uh, from, 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 your, uh, from your day job in, in the Stixrud Group? Yes. So uh, certainly one thing is that... Uh, the kids we see uh, on average are just so much more complicated that in, in the 1980s and 90s, early 2000s, we'd see a lot of kids where the question is, is this a learning disability or does the kid have ADHD? And more commonly now, we're seeing kids where there's questions about learning disabilities or attention problems, kids about autism, really significant emotional dysregulation. Is that because the science has developed or the kids have developed? I think it's probably both. I mean, I, I think that um, certainly, certainly, just simply kid, knowing that kids sleep less now than they did 25 years ago, that in itself, when you when you when you really pay attention to how incredibly important sleep is for brain development and, and emotional and emotional health, just the fact that kids don't sleep as much it is a huge risk factor. Is that, can we blame uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook on that or, or, or Steve well, Jobs and Apple? Well, we start, we start with Edison <laughs> because you know, as adults probably sleep two hours less now than they did before the advent of electric light. Uh, but certainly the, the digital technology keeps, keeps kids up more and, and more and more. And we mentioned in the book 
that in, I think in 2018 or 19, that 200 psychologists signed a petition to the president of the American Psychological Association asking them to censure psychologists who knowing the work in Silicon Valley knowingly creating projects, products for children and teenagers that are as addictive as possible. They're using these kind of behavioral techniques and motivational techniques to, to create products that are as addictive as possible. And I, th I think that's, that's certainly part of the story why kids are more stressed, why they're, why they're, more, they're, they're less well-rested. And the striking thing is, and, and, and I don't, and I'm not sure I've seen this so, so much clinically, Andrew, but the, this striking increase in loneliness in kids since 2012. Which is astonishing given the nature of social media, but as some people have pointed out, including myself, social media actually is anti-social media and fragments <laughs> and isolates us rather than brings us together. Uh, Bill, earlier this week, we had the a Russian investor, um, Sergey Young, on the show. He runs a fund called the Longevity Fund, and he's suggesting that we're going to live to 150 or 200 years um, by the next, uh, in the next 50 years because of advances in technology. That changes not only the idea of being old, but the idea of being young. One of the things that strikes me is that children are children for much longer these days. They're children into their 20s, particularly in COVID and the economic crisis. Uh, more and more kids are living at home. When does childhood end, Bill, these days? It's such a great question, you know, and and a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, basically adolescence was really from like 13 to 17, you know, and now it's like from 13 to 30. And there are people have written about the fact that we just, we, we, that in, in particularly in the, in the beginning of the 1950s, that we created this whole multi-billion dollar teenage culture. Before that, Kids watch, they, they, they watch, they listen to the same radio shows, they, they, they follow the, the same entertainers, that they read the same news as their parents did. And we've developed this new teenage culture. And we expect so little from teenagers. We used to think that teenagers used to get married. They used to be able to own property. And I, I agree that I mean, it's true that teenagers' brains aren't, aren't fully developed. But they aren't really fully developed until their early 30s anyway. And you aren't going to wait until their 30s before you start to treat them like adults. And so I do think that this expanded adolescence, in some ways, it's good because as the brain develops, people can find different ways to do things and find mm. a path. But on the other hand, it's certainly not efficient from a societal point of view when you have 30-year-olds a huge percentage of 30 year olds living at home and, and are trying to figure out what do I want to do in this world. It's ironic. You quote at the beginning of your book, uh, Dylan's, the chimes are a changing. You, you quote, come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out the new one if you can't lend your hand for the times they are a changing. That was from 1964. You suggest. Yeah. Everything changed then, and parents needed to learn to talk to their parents. Dylan, of course, also wrote Forever Young. Um, <laughs> is the cult of youth the problem, Bill? Have people in the counterculture created the cult of youth so that we have Dylan in his 80s and the Rolling Stones in their 80s still going on stage and behaving as if they're adolescents? 
has age itself become a kind of surreal theater in our culture? That's a, it's such a, it's a really interesting question. And I, I do think that um, on the one hand, I mean, so I, I, I play in a rock and roll cover band at, at age 71. And it is you so look fun. like a rocker. I knew <laughs> it, Bill. <laughs> and it's, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't change it. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, uh, this, this, a lot of stuff we play is stuff that I, I play when I was 17 years old. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's not as fulfilling in many ways as, as, as more, mature, <laughs> more mature endeavors. But the interesting thing about that Dylan song was that in, in, the, in the early 60s, uh, actually the same year, uh, 1964, the, the, the Times of the Era Changing came out. This, this, this writer by the name of uh, Rudolf Dreikers published a book for parents Right, The called, Children, The Challenge. Uh, right. I, I, right. uh, I know all about it because I borrowed from your book. It's a brilliant okay. observation yeah. you make uh, juxtaposing Dreikers and, and, and Dylan in the well, book. Well, well, thank you. And, you know, Dreiker said, when mom lost, when dad lost control of mom, they both lost control of the kids. The idea being when, when, when this, um, when this paternalistic kind of, kind of nature of our culture started to shift in, in women's rights and, and, and equality became more prominent, that kids lost a model for subservience. And, and kids started to realize that in, in this democratic society, my parents really can't make me do anything. And I think that that, that has had a huge effect on our culture and on our, and the way that we need to parent kids. Because you know, there used to be, well, why are you doing that? Well, my dad told me I had to do it. Oh, okay, better do it. And kids, kids started to learn that really, you know, my dad says, I got to do it, but he really can't make me do it. And he, he may try to make it unpleasant enough for me, <laughs> so I'll do it, but he really can't make me. And I think that that's exactly right. I think that, that kids these days, they, they at least at some level have an awareness that other people can't make them do things. And I think, which is why we've had to evolve this more kind of respectful, what they call authoritative kind of parenting, um, as opposed to the, the old fashioned authoritarian, because I said so. Authoritative parents, parenting, Bill, don't need me to tell you this, relies on trust, relies on the child uh, giving the parents some degree of credibility of trusting what they say. Um, I think for maybe 40 or 50 years since 64, that worked because younger generation trusted the older generation. I wonder if that's changing now because of the environment and the environmental crisis. We had the British writer Lucy Jones on the show. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this book, Losing Eden. It's a wonderful book. I think you'd actually find it very interesting in which she connects the crisis in the environment with the rise of mental illness. And she suggests that her own addiction to cocaine and other uh, mental problems she had was associated with her disconnection with nature. It seems as if the younger generation are blaming our generation for fucking up the universe. We also had the young uh, anti-plastics activist Hannah Tester on the show who talked about fighting back against the destruction of, 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 of the environment. Do you think that the current crisis of the environment, which goes way beyond COVID, um, represents a new chapter in the relationship, uh, in the generational relationships, and the environment itself um, speaks to 
a, a new awakening for young people. I, I see that especially with my uh, 19-year-old daughter. Well, it, it seriously seems to me that, that, that many, many young people have realized that our parents, didn't, our grandparents didn't get this done. You know, and, and the, the clock is ticking. And, and they're angry, are, aren't they, Bill? They're well, very, very uh, angry. They're not forgiving yeah. us for screwing this thing up. <laughs> I, was doing, I was doing a podcast recently, and the person, it was all uh, it was all audio, and the person didn't realize, I think, it was talking about baby boomers, the way they fuck things up. <laughs> Forgive me. But, 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 you know, not realize that, that I'm a baby boomer myself. But I, I think there, there's truth to the fact that, um, that as, as awareness about about the climate change and what's happening to, to, to the kind of systematic uh, poisoning of our, our environment, um, and, and we just we just didn't do enough about it. We, we just didn't we didn't have the the, the strength, or the courage, or the, or the awareness to uh, to confront legislators, polluters, um, uh, and uh, and certainly there there wasn't the kind of coherence to to, to to do this on a global level. I think you're right. I think the young people do blame their parents and grandparents. Perhaps the title of your next book, Bill, should be What Do You Say? How to Talk with Parents to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, <laughs> and yes, Save the Environment. Um, <laughs> is there a need for, for a book um, for kids about talking to parents? Might that force them to grow up? The generations seem to be so similar now that parents and children talk as friends. And I, I think I think that's a mistake. You know, I, I, people have asked, some people have asked me in the last couple of weeks here, is it a good goal to be like friends to be good friends with your kids? And I, I think if you have an adult, older adult, you know, adult children or fully adult children, I, I think I think it's fine. I mean, but certainly, friendship means that we confide. You don't want to confide all your stuff that you tell a friend to your kid. And I, I and I think that, that we we need to maintain that kind of natural authority that we have as parents, and, and not 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 because I'm bigger and stronger, I'm going to make you do it, but because we're we're wiser, because we have more experience. Ideally, we regulate our emotions better than our kids do, and I think that that, that we don't. And want is that experience? To... Do we justify that experience because we've lived longer, we, we understand the world and life because we've. We've we've experienced so many more scenarios. I Is think that how that, we justify that, it to our kids when they say, "Well, why should I listen to you?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 one of the things that we say in, in our book is that we don't believe in 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 for, trying to find. You know, when parents say, "I've told them a million times," yeah, you know, we we don't believe in trying to. We say, "Offer your advice, offer your insights, but don't try to force it down your kid's throat. Get buy-in." Say, I got an idea about that. Can, can I can I run it by you? The kind of kind of idea where it's always more tentative. I wonder what would happen if you did it this way, and like that. Because I mean, certainly so, so some parents uh, have learned from their experience. Their experience is, is very informative of, of of kids' situation. A lot of parents haven't learned very, you know, and their experience isn't isn't that relevant to their kids. And that that's why we say take take this respectful kind of angle and offer your help, offer your insights. But, but get buy-in before you do. So you just become somebody who's just blathering at your kids, t t telling your kids stuff that your kid doesn't see as relevant. It's all about talking, at least according to uh, uh, William Stixelrud. What do you say? How to talk with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance, and a happy home. 
He's just the, the book is out today. He wrote it with Ned Johnson. It's uh, it's a very insightful, um, uh, engaging book for particularly, I think, for parents. Congratulations, uh, Bill, on the book. Thanks, uh, I know you're uh, you're at home at the moment with that wonderful background, very therapeutic background. Uh, uh, you're doing lots of Zoom calls, I think, probably not just with media, but with kids and parents. What else should people be reading? in these strange times where COVID is popping in and out of our lives and we're not quite sure whether we're getting back to normal or not, in addition yeah. to what do you say? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that uh, a book that came out uh, a, a year or two before our first book did, uh, and you, I'm sure you you know this one well, uh, Julia Lithgott-Hames, How to Raise an Adult, yeah, um, we had How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes on, on the, the, the show uh, <laughs> by Melinda uh, Wernemeyer. Uh, so uh, that's sort of a, a more polite version of that, I guess. Well, yeah, and, and the idea is simply, and we, we had the same theme in, in, in our first book, which is that we want to be thinking that the most important outcome in child, childhood and adolescence, it's not where you go to college. It's basically who you are and what, how, you're, how, how healthy your brain is. And we think that, that because chronic stress is terrible for the brain, for the developing brain, we think that, that really focusing on the long run and, and, and as, we, as we kids bring in our school, not, not going back to the way it was. We don't, that, that's that, going back to the, the old normal was terrible. We had a crisis, mental health crisis, epidemic level before the pandemic. We don't want to go exactly back there. And I think this idea of how do we focus on raising adults, that's really what we're trying to do, raise healthy adults, as opposed to just focusing on their achievement, 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 building a college resume, like that. And the other one, I, I think, is just along the same theme, I, I like, is Denise Pope's book, and with written a couple of other people called Overloaded and Unprepared. Uh, and it's a kind of critique of, our current educational system, right. and again, there's this hyperemphasis on so you know, we'd like to get our, we, We've had a number of shows. We also had Daniel Markovitz on, one of the great critics of American oh, meritocracy, yeah. saying that yeah. kids are miserable because of this over-competitiveness. So it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's worthy of another show. Uh, Bill Sticks, Rod, a real uh, honor, pleasure. Keep talking, keep writing, keep thinking, keep listening, keep rocking. Uh, congratulations <laughs> on the new book. We'll talk again in the not too distant future. Okay. Keep well. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Be well.